Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Real World. This is your host, Juan Pablo Sá, talking to you from the CITR station at UBC Point Grey campus, located in the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. This week, we have a very special episode for all of you, because once again, I am joined by the amazing, the incredible Lily Grow. Say hello, Lily. Hello. Hell yes. And yeah, this week, I am very excited. I don't know how this is going to go, but, you know, I guess we're going to have to wait and find out. Uh, but this week, I'm finally doing my episode on the movies that shaped me. Or, you know, being completely honest, if there's another way I could have called this series, it could have been, you know, a story of my life told through film. So <laughs> I think I think that's what's going to happen this week's episode. You know, we're going to go through the movies that shaped me, but, you know, we're also going to go through the story of my life. Little Juanito, little Juan Pablo growing up in Colombia. And yeah, we're gonna we're gonna see my story told through film. Can't wait. Uh but before we start and before we jump into the topics and you know before I start talking about the movies that shaped me, we will go into a very brief musical break. And the song that we're gonna be playing is actually from the first movie that I will be talking about. Ooh. The first movie out of the movies that shaped me. And here it is.
Welcome back to the real world. This is your host, Juan Pablo Sá, talking to you from CITR 101.9 FM Vancouver. I hope you'll enjoy that musical break, and I apologize for the technical difficulties. <laughs> the ads and PSAs are not currently working right now. We'll figure that out shortly. Uh, but yeah, I hope you'll enjoy that musical break. Of course, that is Circle of Life from The Lion King, one of the greatest songs ever written for a movie, in my opinion, and one of the best opening scenes ever put to screen. Uh, but yeah, okay, before I jump into the movies that shaped me, one last thing that I have to say is that, once again, this is not a list about my favorite movies, this is not a list about the best movies I've ever seen, this is a list about movies that have had a big impact in my life and have shaped the person that I am today. Okay, with that in mind, let's start talking about the movies that shaped me. And the first batch of movies that I'm going to be talking about are... I would call my childhood. These are movies that had a very big impact in my childhood. And the first movie I'll talk about is, of course, The Lion King. Um, it is my favorite Disney movie. I think The Lion King is an absolute masterpiece. I mean, of course, it's, it's Hamlet told with animals. Um, love it so much. Incredible music, incredible animation, incredible story. Uh, but yeah, the, one of the main reasons why I included in this list as one of the movies that shaped me is because The Lion King is actually the first movie that I ever remember crying to. Uh, I, I mean, I might have cried to other movies before, but this is the first one where I do have a vivid memory of Mufasa dying. I, I guess, spoiler alert, if you, <laughs> if you haven't seen The Lion King. Uh, but yeah, you know, uh, Mufasa dies, he gets trampled by wildebeests, and that was completely shocking, you know, for a little young Juan who... You know, I was like, what, four, three years old? I, I, I was barely even understanding the concept of death and the concept of mortality. And then out of nowhere, I see this animated movie where this incredible lion papa just dies. And it was heart-wrenching. I, I was destroyed by that. <laughs> I remember wanting to rewatch The Lion King, but feeling scared of rewatching it because I just didn't want to see that scene once again. I didn't want to see Mufasa dying once again. Uh, so yeah, that is the first movie that I will talk about. Incredible, incredible freaking movie, but, you know, also the first movie that ever made me cry. And even though I am including The Lion King in this section about my childhood and about movies that shaped my childhood, uh, if I'm being honest, this is a movie that continues to shape me every time I rewatch it. And it is one of those great films that every time I come back to it, I just I just find something new and I, I just find something of value to grasp. Uh, for instance, last time I watched it, which was actually my birthday, <laughs> last year's birthday, June yeah. 30th. Uh, me and some friends got together after playing volleyball on the beach and we watched <laughs> The Lion King uh, at the Norm Theater here on campus. And yeah, I, I was just completely floored by, you know, some of the deeper philosophical undertones that, you know, of course, me as a child wasn't able to catch. Like, for instance, there's a, there's that incredible conversation between Rafiki and Simba where, like, you know, Rafiki's the monkey, by the way, the, the baboon, <laughs> in case you guys don't don't follow Disney names. Uh, but, you know, there's that incredible moment where, like, Simba needs to be convinced that he is the king, that he is worthy of being king, that oh, he yeah. needs to go back to Pride Rock. And the baboon is there to convince him. And, you know, Simba has this conversation with his father in the sky and he sees his father in his reflection. But then after that, you have, like, this great moment where Rafiki just hits Simba in the head with his stick. And Simba's like, the hell was that for? Of course, I'm paraphrasing Simba. Simba, <laughs> did, Simba didn't say what the hell was that for. But, you know, he says, like, what was that for? And then Rafiki says, it doesn't matter. It's in the past. And then Simba says, yes, but it still hurts. And then Rafiki hits us with, like, one of the most beautiful and profound morsels of knowledge that I've ever seen. And, yeah, he says, the past can't hurt, 
But the way I see it, you can either run from it or learn from the past. Wow. And I, yeah, I, I love The Lion King. It shaped my childhood. It was the first movie that ever made me cry, or at least that I remember ever making me cry. Right. And to this day, it is a movie that still has a huge impact in who I am nowadays, I guess. Now, the second movie that I want to talk about in this chapter on my childhood is Hercules. Disney's Hercules. Yes, even though The Lion King right now is my favorite Disney movie and it is the one that I gravitate to the most, Disney Hercules is a Disney movie that I was obsessed with. Have you seen Hercules, Lily? No, Do you I remember? Haven't. You haven't I seen haven't. Hercules? I've heard really good things about it. I was I was I was so obsessed with this movie. And this movie was so influential to my life because it got me into Greek mythology and it oh. got me into storytelling. You know, I remember watching this movie and I was like, "Whoa, like what what the hell is this based on? And, you know, gods and, and elements and fights and titans and demigods with powers. It, it was completely incredible. And this movie really got me interested into, you know, reading more books, watching more movies, learning about Greek mythology. You know, I remember I was completely shocked when I learned that, like, you know, Hades and Greek mythology isn't actually a bad guy, you know, but they turn him into a bad guy in this movie. And, Yeah, this movie, huge influence on me. It really got me into storytelling. It really got me into Greek mythology. Um, and I I would say that that was like one of my first obsessions, Greek mythology. I was like really into <laughs> that shit. And speaking of obsessions, the next movie I will talk about is also a movie that I was obsessed with as a child. And unconventional pick, it is a documentary called March of the Penguins. <laughs> Narrated by Morgan Freeman with his beautiful chocolatey voice. And you were obsessed with I that. was freaking obsessed with March of the Penguin. Have you seen March of the Penguins, Lily? No. Ah, oh, you're missing out. Okay, I don't remember it this that well, but okay. I just remember it was a whole movie about emperor penguins, you know, in, in Spanish. Yeah. I, I knew this movie as La Marcha del Emperador, The March of the Emperor. Oh, wow. And it is a story about, like, a group of emperor penguins just migrating from one part of the South Pole to another part of the South Pole and all of the the obstacles they have to face and, you know, they come face to face with sea lions and poachers and then some of them die and, and, and some of them get left behind. And then they show you, like, the beautiful camaraderie in between male and female penguins and how males are the one who carry the eggs. And I just, I was, I was so obsessed with this movie. I was so obsessed with penguins. With penguins after that? Oh, yeah. To this day, in my room, there's still a penguin painting framed above my bed, okay? Wow. <laughs> I used to have so many penguin toys. When Happy Feet came out, I became obsessed with Happy Feet. <laughs> I had every single Happy Feet McDonald toy. I love penguins. To this day, I still think they're my favorite animals. Okay. You know, there's something quite beautiful, poetic, and philosophical about birds that are not able to fly, but yet they're still able to find joy and happiness in their lives. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this, this movie... It, it really had an impact. You know, I remember being a child and being like, Mom, play me the <laughs> penguin movie. I want to see the penguin movie. Uh, so, yeah, that is another movie that had a huge impact on me. Now, another movie, even more unconventional, even more unknown than March of the and Penguin. It's a documentary? It is not a documentary. Okay. It's a Mexican animated movie called An Excellent Movie. But what I knew it as is Una Película de Huevos, which literally translates to a movie of eggs. Okay. <laughs> I freaking loved this movie. Okay, what is it about? So here's the thing, here's the thing. Okay. No one in Colombia knew about the existence of this movie, okay? No, it's like a Mexican film. Like, some Mexican children knew about it, but, like, no one in Colombia did. You know, and we watched, like, Disney movies and DreamWorks and stuff like that, but not not weird Mexican egg movies. 
And then I remember one trip, I went to the beach with my family and like a, 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 a cousin, like, you know, a far off cousin, twice removed. I don't know how to say that. <laughs> but um, he came to me and he was like, hey, I was like, I was like, I was like five at this time. And he was like, hey, got to show you something. And I was like, what the fuck? Oh, my God. I'm sorry, Adam. But I was like, oh, my God, what is what is happening? What is he going to show me? And then he takes me into the room. Turns off the light. Yeah. No, no, it's a wholesome story, Lily. Oh, this yeah. is not scary. I'm just saying, why is it like so hidden from everyone no, else? Like no, you were no. selected. I was selected, yeah. Wow, that's impressive. And then he opened his portable DVD and showed yeah, me yeah, one that. movie effects. <laughs> and uh, for those of you who don't know, which shame on you if you don't know about one movie effects. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> uh, one movie effects is the story of an egg called Toto. And he is born in a farm from a chicken. And then he gets very quickly separated from his mother no. and sent to a supermarket. And the whole story is this egg trying his very freaking best to escape from the kitchen, travel through a supermarket, sewers, festivals, carnivals, everywhere in order to get back to his mommy and become a chick. Yeah. Be able to hatch and become a chicken. And I I loved it. I loved it. It was the funniest thing I had ever seen. This is a movie that right now I'm scared to rewatch because I'm scared (laughs) it's not going to hold up as much as... Sometimes it's nice to like keep it how you remember. Yeah, you know, I do want to rewatch it eventually, but I'm just scared. <laughs> I'm scared it's not going to age well. I want to watch it. But the point is, after seeing it, I was like, I, I felt like, you know, I felt like Indiana Jones in the first movie when he like finds like the, 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 like the, the lost Ark. I was like, oh my God. Like I just found like this incredible historical artifact that <laughs> no one knows about. Like I just uncovered a mystery. And I remember from that day on, Every time that they would do a pizza party at my school, which, you know, we, our teacher would buy pizza and then okay. we would get to pick a movie to yeah. watch as a class. Every single time I would be like, dudes, I'm telling you, trust me, one movie of X. We are watching <laughs> one movie of X. And every single time one movie of X got outvoted by another freaking movie. No. <laughs> Except for one time. Okay, okay. But then the one time where I convinced everyone to vote for one movie of X... I had a pirated DVD of one movie of eggs, so yeah. it didn't work. Oh, <laughs> so, no. so to this day, my friends still don't know the glorious gift that is one movie of eggs. Or an excellent movie, as you know, as you North Americans translated it, I guess. We butchered it. Um yes. Anyways, uh you know, stay still staying in the topic of my childhood. Another movie that had a big, big impact and okay, I guess this is a good point for me to make to say a little caveat. And that is that, you know, the movies that I'm going to mention as part of this list uh, are movies that impacted me in different ways. You know, some of these films, the content was so profound or I enjoyed the content so much that, you know, they left an impact in who I am and, you know, they turned me into the person that I am. Other films, it's more the cinematic experience. It's the experience of watching this film really, really shaped me. Uh, so, yeah, just saying that very clear. And having said that, the next movie in my list is Ice Age 3. Dawn of the Dinosaurs. Okay. <laughs> and uh, this is one of the movies that I was kind of debating if I should bring it up. <laughs> this is one of the movies that I was kind of debating if I was willing to humiliate myself in front of <laughs> our listeners, which I'm sure there are many of them. Um, but you know what? Frick it. Yeah, I'm not going to say the bad word. Frick it. <laughs> uh, I, will, I will say. But the point is... Uh, Ice Age 3, Dawn of the Dinosaurs, came out in 2009. I was eight years old. I remember going to this movie with my family when it came out, and I remember feeling so anxious 
having like a crisis, having like a eight-year-old crisis watching that movie. And the reason why I had a crisis is very silly. It's it's complete. I I acknowledge it. It's very very silly. Okay. But back then it felt so real. And for those of you guys who don't know much about the Ice Age mythos, do you, do you know about the Ice Age story, Lily? Um, no. Well, <laughs> I'm so surprised. <laughs> uh, the point is, in the Ice Age, there is this character called Scrat, and he's like a little squirrel. And the I whole thing about that squirrel is that he wants to get an acorn. Yeah, yeah. And he always tries to get the acorn, and he and he tries and tries, but he keeps failing, and it's super super funny. I love that squirrel. The point is, in the third movie. He gives up on getting the, the the acorn. Oh, and wow. the reason why he gives up on getting an acorn is because he gets a girlfriend. There wow. is a little female squirrel that oh Scrat falls in love with, and eight-year-old Juan was wrecked. I was an emotional Wait, mess. In what way? <sighs> You're upset. I, for some reason, I remember eight-year-old me watching that movie and thinking, "Damn." Even the squirrel has a girlfriend, and I don't. But I was eight, so like, there's no reason for me to feel that way. But I remember being mortified. Like, I remember being so, so sad because the squirrel had a girlfriend and not me. I thought you were gonna say something more like he gave up on his dreams for someone else. Like, you should always put yourself first, and like that really hurt. Or like, Lily, I was you. eight. <laughs> okay, I was eight. I don't know why. I didn't have the mental so capacity deep. to think like that. Yeah, yeah, it was just. I you were jealous. I remember a squirrel, an animated squirrel. Yes, I remember being in that theater and thinking to myself, "That is it. I'm gonna die alone. I am never gonna find love. The squirrel found love, and not me. That is the end of it. It's that's it. And I, I to this day, I still remember how traumatic that experience oh, was. Okay, sorry, I don't mean to laugh. I will <laughs> no, always kidding. hold I mean, this against you, though. No, yeah, <laughs> please do. I mean. Nowadays, I do acknowledge it is like one of the silliest things I've ever done. But back in the day, it felt so real. Did you like leave the theater and like no, not talking to I, anyone? You didn't talk to your family, or did you confide in them? I, I this is this is the first time I've ever talked about this, Lily. Oh my <laughs> okay, gosh. Oh my gosh. listeners of the real world, you guys are getting some. <laughs> I, you know, this is the point of the show where I'm kind of regretting some of the films that are coming down the line. But hey, you know what? Frick it. We're, we're, Frick. That's okay. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, the oh, point I'm is, glad you're finally getting this off your shoulders. <laughs> thank you, it thank you, Lily. On you. Thank you. It was. <laughs> yeah. No, it's super silly. I don't. I don't care about it anymore. But back in the day, oh boy, did no, I did yeah. I cry for yeah. my lack of female squirrels in my life. I can see that. Anyways, <laughs> moving <laughs> on. <laughs> moving on from squirrels. The next movie in my childhood section is you know we're going from squirrels to guinea pigs, and the next movie is. A movie produced by Michael Bay about guinea pigs that are spies in disguise. And this movie is called G-Force. <laughs> Have oh. you watched G-Force, Lily? No. I don't blame you. Apparently, it's terrible. The only reason... What do you mean, apparently? Because, hey, apparently people hate it. Like, it has horrible scores on Letterboxd and IMDb and everywhere. But the only reason why I include G-Force as one of the movies that shaped me... Is because this is the first time in my life where I ever got spoiled. And I remember hating it so, so freaking much. So here's what happened. I was I was leaving my building with my family. We were in our car. And, you know, as we were living on the road, uh, a friend of mine who, you know, went to the same school as me, 
she was coming back. And turns out she was coming back from the theaters to watch G-Force. You know, okay. she was coming back from watching G-Force. And I was on my way to the theater to watch G-Force. And I remember our cars parked, you know, and we were like, hey, what's up? How are you? And I was like, hey, you know, saying hello to my friend. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, oh, what are you guys going? And I, my family was like, oh, we're watching this movie called G-Force. And then my friend, my friend, friend, friend you say now. <laughs> yeah, she pops out her head from the window, from the backseat window, and she screams at me, oh, the mole's the bad guy. And I remember being so mad. And my whole way from there to the theater, I was like thinking to myself, okay, I need to forget this. I need to force myself to forgetting mm-hmm. that the mole is the bad guy. I didn't forget that the mole was a bad guy. And the mole ended up being the surprise bad guy. And the whole movie was ruined for was, me. That was the whole mystery of like who was behind yes, it all. Yes, it was a plot twist. You know, it, it's it's like a spy thriller with guinea pigs. And the guinea pigs are trying to find like the guy behind everything. And then the guy behind everything ends up being their supposed friend, the mole. That's messed up. Yeah, it, it was. <laughs> that little brat. So the point is, to this day, I still remember that interaction. And it left an impact on me. And yeah. I think... This day I learned that I hate spoilers and I try my best to avoid getting spoiled. We've definitely done a few on here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so thank you, GeForce. I guess you 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 forged a very important part of my film watching personality. Oh yeah. Now, another film in my childhood section is Up, 2009's Up, and this movie is very special and I have it in this list because it is the first time you know. The Lion King was the first time that I remember ever crying watching a movie, but Up is the first time that I remember crying in the first, like, 10 minutes of a movie. Right. You know, when that when that montage happens, showing you the life of Carl and Ellie mm-hmm. and them growing up and growing apart, and then Ellie dies, and it's it, it was just... I, I didn't know what I was watching. Once again, I was eight, and I was having a freaking breakdown in the theater seeing these two people who used to be children just grow old and die. I... <laughs> I, it was too much. It was too much, man. And it I, I, too much. I, I, I still remember it. Incredible film. Love Up. Mm-hmm. One of the best Pixar movies ever made. But, oh my God, it left an impact. Now, last movie that I will include in my childhood section is Mary Poppins. The original Mary Poppins. Uh, this was a movie that meant a lot to my mother when she was growing up. So I watched it with her religiously, like almost once a month. We would watch Mary Poppins. I would know all the songs by heart. I, st- I, I think to this day, I could still sing supercalifragilisticexpialidocious or yeah. Chim Chimini or, you know, one of the many songs. Um, this movie meant a lot to me. It, it taught me a lot. It was fun. It was cool. You know, it was about this magical nanny that came to this place and, you know, made the children in their home have, like, the best time ever. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I want a magical nanny that can come home and, like, you know, teach me to do all these things. I, I kind of did. I kind of had, you know, I, I had a great nanny. She wasn't magical, but she was like an art professor, like okay. an art teacher. So she would always do like arts and crafts with me. And that was like the best thing ever. Um, but yeah, the point is the reason why Mary Poppins is important will come back later in this episode. Oh. So that's the setup. The payoff will come out later. Now, uh, the second section. Um, so we're done with the childhood section. Now, okay. The next section I want to get into is becoming a fan. You know, a very important part of my personality is I am a fan. I love certain universes. I love certain worlds. I love certain characters. And yeah, I, I mean, I'm not ashamed to, to admit that. I love Star Wars. I love Harry Potter. I love Lord of the Rings. I, I love Dune. I love Marvel. I Well, at the moment, it's making me sad. Marvel is making me sad. But I do love all of these worlds. And, you know, this started happening in this period in my time of my life where I started becoming a fan. 
And the first movie that I want to bring up is Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. I remember many of my friends were trying to get me to watch this film, and I, I don't know, I, I didn't. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm above that. Yeah, I'm cool. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't need to watch. <laughs> I don't need to jump on the bandwagon yeah. of Harry Potter, huh? <laughs> Then one day, I remember I was like so desperate for something to watch. There was nothing good in television, and then I switched through the channels, and they were showing Harry Potter. And I remember the scene that they were showing were like all the letters raining into the house, and I was like, you know what? Maybe I should check it out. And I watched it, and oh my god, I f- completely fell in love with Harry Potter, the movies, the books, the world, the characters, absolutely everything. You know, as we've established, you know, I have always been kind of obsessive with the things I love, you know, Hercules and Greek mythology yeah. and penguins, penguins, I guess. <laughs> and then from Greek mythology and penguins, I jumped to Harry Potter. That was my next obsession. And when I say obsessed, I mean it. I dressed up like Harry Potter in fifth grade. I, you know, I had like the whole costume and the scar and the <laughs> glasses. Uh, I, I forced my parents. I mean, they, they wanted to. I didn't force them. But I would never, I, I wouldn't shut up. And I was, I tried my best every single day to get my parents to take me to Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida to go yeah. to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. We did. I got you my. You went? Yes. Oh my gosh, and I'm so jealous. It was one of the most magical experiences ever. I drank butterbeer, I went to Ollivander's, I bought so many ones. I'm not, I've bought so many ones. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you, you parents. You got the chocolate frogs. I got chocolate frogs, I got Birdie Bob's Every Flavored Beans. I, it, it, it was amazing. I, I was obsessed with Harry Potter. So yeah, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, definitely a very important part in turning me into the person that I am today. Now, the next movie I want to talk about in this phase of becoming a fan, is also a Harry Potter movie, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Okay. And the reason why I bring this film up as a movie that shaped me is because this is another one I'm kind of regretting mentioning, but, you know, frick it. Um, this was the first movie where I ever felt anything for a woman. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I knew that was coming. I remember seeing Hermione Granger walking down those steps of the jewel ball wearing her pink dress and little 11-year-old Juan was like, whoa. Oh, was oh she like God. your first celebrity crush? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. By far. Except for the squirrel in Ice Age. No, I'm kidding. I, mean, <laughs> I, I didn't have a crush on the squirrel. But uh, yeah, no, uh, Hermione Granger, oof, I was, I was very much in love with Hermione Granger, I yeah. guess. Uh, but yeah, okay, that's that. Moving on. No, but so true. Everyone was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hey, I guess that was you, her big moment. That was, and it was incredible. How could you not with the dress? I can't wait to hear about your first celebrity crush next week, Lily. <laughs> Maybe we'll see. We'll, <laughs> we'll see. see. Uh, and then, okay, the next movie that I will bring up in this section is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Part 2. Uh, and this movie was incredibly meaningful to me because it was the first time, this is the first time ever that I ever remember just wanting to go to an opening screening, to the first screening ever. I remember bothering my mom so much until she bought tickets for the first screening ever. I still remember July 15. Don't remember the year, but July 15. Let me tell you the year. July 15, 20, I want to say, I want to say 2011. Yes, July 15, 2011, I, w- I was bothering my mom every single day for like the month leading up to that day. She got us tickets for like the earliest screening ever. And it was amazing. It was like, you know, sensing the atmosphere in that room and people excited and people dressing up and people clapping. It just, 
it meant so much to me. And to this day, if there's a movie that I really care for, I always try to go opening day screening. Like that means a lot to me. You know, the atmosphere, being there with fans, with yeah. people who care for this world as much as I do. And Deadly Hallows Part Two was my first introduction to that world. And oh boy, I loved it. Um, moving on. Of course, I have to mention Lord of the Rings and the Fellowship of the Ring. I, I loved Harry Potter so much. I was so obsessed with Harry Potter to the point where one of my older cousins came to me and he was like, hey, it's it's fine that you like Harry Potter, but you got to move on. <laughs> and he literally told me like, hey, if you like Harry Potter, check out Lord of the Rings. It's even better. And at first I was like, wow. no way, no way, Lord of the Rings. It's even better than Harry Potter. Bleh, freaking blasphemy. But then I watched it and oh my God. I mean, to this day, I still say that Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, and the other two, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, are the three greatest films I've ever seen in my life. They are three films where I think that absolutely everything was firing on all cylinders. Acting, incredible. Set design, incredible. Music, incredible. Cinematography, incredible. Story, incredible. Characters, incredible. Just every single thing about those films was just firing on all cylinders. And, you know, something that I've always really enjoyed is world building and I love the world building in Harry Potter and Hogwarts and Hogsmeade and Gringotts and all mm. that thing but you know the world building in Harry Potter is nothing compared to the world building in Lord of the Rings like we're talking about a world where a guy literally invented complete maps and like continents and, and cities and places and he created races he created languages he created thousands of years of backstory I was shocked and I love Lord of the Rings so yeah from Greek mythology to penguins <laughs> to Harry Potter, to Lord of the Rings. That's the way my obsessions went. Um, and then, of course, I was so obsessed with Lord of the Rings, but I, I didn't watch Lord of the Rings in theaters because, you know, those movies came out like 1999, 2000, and 2001. I was born in 2001. Uh, <laughs> where were you born? You're so Lily? young. You're so young. <laughs> I, I, I am. I am. What can I say? You know, I'm, I'm very young. Um, <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> Uh, the point is, I never watched the original Lord of the Rings in theater. So then when I found out that this movies called The Hobbit were coming out, I was like, oh, my God, like this, this is my Lord of the Rings. This is my generation's Lord of the Rings. And I wasn't able to catch I, I wasn't able to catch the first Hobbit movie uh, in theaters. I think I got into Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit after the first one came out. Then I saw the second one in theater. But then the third one, once again, Battle of the Five Armies, I, buying tickets months in advance, planning everything with all my friends. I also think this is the first time in my life where I've read a book before watching the movies because I wanted to know everything. Yeah. And I wanted to be like that one guy who's always like, oh, I read the books, you know, and this doesn't happen they in the books. They changed the scene a bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that was me. That was so me. <laughs> Good. Uh, I wanted to be that for The Hobbit. So I was like, I'm reading this book and I'm watching the movie. And, you know, people hate The Hobbit movies, but they will always have a special place in my heart because of what they meant. Yeah, they were the Lord of the Rings for my generation. Yeah. And, you know, they're not as good as Lord of the Rings. Of course they're not. But, heck it, I had fun with them. Um, now, the last movie in my becoming a fan age is, of course, the first Iron Man. The first movie in the Marvel Cinematic yeah. Universe. Like, what? How? how can I not include the, the movie that started this burning passion inside of me for superheroes? And here's the thing, you know, as I've already established, I was a sucker for Greek mythology. I loved Greek mythology. I loved Greek heroes, you know, demigods. Hercules would go on in like this 12 tasks and he would like fight these incredible creatures and he would go on these huge adventures. And, you know, in recent years, I've been reading a lot about how superhero movies, you know, DC, Marvel, all of that stuff, how superheroes and superhero characters are basically Greek mythology for our generation. 
superpower beings who go on challenges, who face insurmountable foes, and who fight this huge, huge creatures. Like, there's no difference in between Hercules, a guy who is incredibly strong, who fights like a giant freaking lion. Like, there's nothing different with that compared to like, I don't know, Iron Man or Captain America. Like, they're both superpowered individuals who go off in missions to fight this huge, huge beings. So yeah, I love Greek mythology so much that in a way it makes sense that I would get obsessed with superheroes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that is that is that is the section of becoming a fan. Now the next section is called um, growing up. <laughs> this is a section where some of the hard realities of life started to set in. And the first movie I want to bring up is actually a TV special. It's not a movie, but okay. I'm bringing it up because it had a huge impact on me. It is called Mermaids: The Body Found. Have you seen this, Lily? No. Long story short, back in 2011, also 2011, back in 2011, Animal Planet decided to make a special where they pretended that mermaids were real. Wait, what the heck? Yeah, 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 yeah. And this was like Animal Planet. And they pretended that mermaids were real and they spent so much money on CGI to make like the CGI mermaids that, you know, for a 10-year-old back in 2011, they looked incredibly realistic. Yeah. And the whole reason why they made this documentary pretending that mermaids was real is because they, you know, they, they aired it on April Fool's, you know, they aired it on April 1st. So it was What? like a huge April Fool's thing from Animal Planet. Saying that they found... Yeah, and, and they brought like real scientists to talk like, yeah, yeah, you know, some monkeys evolved in the ground, That's but some so other monkeys funny. evolved on the sea. I've never heard of this. It, the point is, in Colombia, we don't have April Fool's. We, we don't do April Fool's. <laughs> so I watched this in 2011 and I, my mind was blown. I was like, oh my God mermaids are real i remember calling my 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 parents my friends and being like guys you're never gonna believe me they found a mermaid <laughs> they're freaking real you know monkeys evolved in the sea and they became mermaids like like it's it they're real they're freaking real <laughs> and i i grabbed this flag and i went to war with this you know, supposition that mermaids were real and I was telling everyone about it and I told all my friends and I created like a little group of friends in school where we were all like, oh my God, mermaids are real. <laughs> and then eventually we told one of our professors and the teacher was, you know, she was very kind of surprised. Then yeah. she looked up I, and I remember we would all say like, yeah, look it up. There's a documentary. There's a documentary. Eventually she found out it was just an April Fool's joke. She explained to us what happened and I think that's, you know, one of the most significant disappointments in my life. I think that was the day when I found out, you know, duly noted. I can't trust any, everything I see on TV. Yeah, geez, that's cruel. Yeah, so that's why it's part of the growing up section. Because this uh, documentary shattered my innocence and it, you know, instilled a sense of, you know, second guessing everything and, you know, not trusting everything I see at a first glance. Mm, true. Um, so that is the first one. Now, the second movie I want to talk about in growing up is Ron Howard's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. <laughs> Okay. Uh, I include this movie in my growing up section because, once again, I think this is the first time I've ever said this, like, in a public space, but uh, I used to be terrified by the Grinch. Like, <laughs> deathly terrified, Lily. Like, to the point where I wouldn't turn on the television on, on December, like, on the whole month of December, I wouldn't turn on the TV, I wouldn't watch TV because I was scared I would see the Grinch. Oh. I was horrified by him. But Jim Carrey's Grinch, Jim's Car like the animated Grinch, fine. Book Grinch, fine. Jim Carrey's Grinch, oh my God. I yeah. had like yeah, nightmares of him. <laughs> It, terrifying, terrifying. So why do I include him in my growing up section? Well, 
because when I was in sixth grade, I my school did a you know a huge Christmas play, and the play was The Grinch. Okay. And I got cast as the Grinch. No. Yeah. So a weird Freudian thing <laughs> happened where, after fearing this thing for my entire childhood, I ended up becoming the thing that I swore to destroy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I got cast the role, I was like, "Damn, I've become the thing I'm so afraid of." And I remember when they did the first makeup test on me, and when I tried my costume for the first time, and I looked at myself in the mirror, I'm like. I used to be scared of him, but but it's me now. Like, how do I? I didn't know how to react, and you know, I think that was my first time ever where I surpassed one of my fears, and I was very proud of it. Um, and I I killed it as a Grinch. For the record, do you I have any freaking, evidence? I think my mom has a picture of me being like, ah, I had like this very long fingers, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I was like yeah. all hairy and shit. Okay, jeez. Uh, but I, I I killed it as the Grinch. Like I remember, oh, I, I'm dude, sure. it was like the best job ever. Like you know, set designers and like PTA moms that would like you know do the set design for us. They would like build like these beautiful <laughs> Christmas trees, and they would wrap these beautiful presents. And my job was to go on stage and just completely destroy everything. I would destroy Christmas trees. I would grab presents and throw them at the audience. It was the best job ever. Oh, I, bet I you loved were really it, good at that. dude. And okay, as a six-year-old, the amount of middle school fame I got from that play—oh my god, dude! Second graders would come out to me and ask me for my autograph. I didn't even have an out. I would just like scratch something on a piece of paper. They would give me like per paper airplanes. Like children would come to me and give me like their Rice Krispies and their brownies, and I would be like, no, don't. <laughs> Um, but you know the point is after sixth, sixth grade I I left middle school and I started high school and all my fame disappeared. <laughs> yeah, wow. it lasted it lasted like three months. <laughs> but it, for that time it was great. Um, the point is how the Grinch stole Christmas. You know, pretty meaningful for me. I used to be terrified of the Grinch. Ended up becoming the Grinch. Came full circle. That's crazy. It, it, yeah, it was crazy. Um, I should find a picture of me as the Grinch. That yeah. would be funny. I'll, I'll send it to love you, to Lily, if that. I do. I would love it. Uh, now. The next movie uh, in the section of growing up um, is a movie starring starring Jason Statham uh, and James Franco called uh, Homefront. And no one cares about this movie. No one has heard about this movie. You know, it's one of those B movies of like Jason Statham how to pr- has to protect his daughter from like evil men. And he like kills a bunch of people. And it's like, you know, it's one of those yeah. badass action movies. Okay. The point is, all of my friends got together and we were like, hey. We're gonna sneak into this film. Oh. We're gonna we're gonna sneak into this film. I know we were like, no, but we're not allowed. We're not eighteen year olds. How are we gonna do that? And then we 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 came up with this whole plan that we were gonna like buy tickets for like for like an animated film, and then we we're gonna go into the animated film. But then as soon as the the trailers ended, we would run into the other theater and we would find any empty seats and we would sit there. And we did it, and it worked, and it was amazing. And I felt like such an adult. I was like, oh my god, hell yeah! I'm seeing Jason Statham kill people. Then a sex scene happened. <laughs> uh, and I think... Uh, this movie came out in 2013, so I was 12. Um, this was the first time I ever saw, like, like sex on screen. And me and all my friends kept, like, looking at each other, being like, what the hell is happening? What are we watching? Why are these people screaming? Uh, we didn't get it, but it was a very informative and kind of traumatizing experience. Yeah. And then after the sex scene, Jason Statham went on to kill, like, a bunch of people in very bloody, gruesome ways. And we were all like, oh, my God, what is this? <laughs> so, yeah, sneaking into Homefront. This is something that I haven't even confessed to my parents, okay? So this is, well, this is God, another like little real-world secret. 
oh yeah well i'm sorry Exposed. i guess <laughs> yeah. yeah that's traumatizing uh but yeah that's so that's 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 another film that is definitely part of my growing up section <laughs> yeah. um and then the next film i will include here is avatar the first avatar which came out in 2009 um and you know this movie incredibly meaningful to me it is one of the best cinematic experiences i've ever had in my life uh you know my parents my parents growing up, they were never like movie people. You know, my father has a farm full of chickens and cows and, you know, sugarcane. Uh, my mom used to be a professional cyclist. Uh, but they were never like, oh, we need to watch the Oscar nominated movies. No, like they only went to movies when it was like Disney movies or DreamWorks movies with us. Right. Uh, which was great. Like as a child, that was great. Like, oh, my parents would be like into the same movies kind of. And we would go like once a month and we would see like the big animated film and it was great. Um, but they would never go out of their, of their way to take me to, like, the big spectacle, like, the big superhero stuff. Like, that that I would go to with, like, my friends. Yeah. Um, and the point is, Avatar came out, and it started, like, breaking all of these records. And I remember my grandma, who, uh, my mother's mom, who is an artist, a local artist in Colombia. She is uh, someone who taught me a lot about art and paint and drawing and sculpting. And, you know, I owe her so much in my life, and I love her so much. Um and the point is, she was like, hey, you know, this movie's breaking every record. You need to see it. And my parents allowed her to take me, and she took me to watch Avatar, the first one. Yeah. And I remember I, 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 I was a very hyperactive kid. I think to some extent I still am, but uh, I was even more hyperactive. And my parents wouldn't allow me, wouldn't let me drink coffee. Uh, but I was out with my grandma, so I was like, hey, you know, you know, Granny, uh, every time we come to the movies, my parents buy me, like, this huge iced coffee. And my grandma was like, oh, they do? Huh? Well, I, I guess I gotta buy you it's one then. Fair, yeah. And she bought me, like, a huge, huge coffee. And I drank that whole thing watching Avatar. And my mind was blown watching the incredible visuals, the Pandora animals, the atmosphere. I was like, oh my god, what am I watching? I felt like I was transported to an alien planet. And on top of that, I was drinking this coffee that was making me more and more hyperactive and more into the film. And then after the movie, I was just a huge ball of energy <laughs> because the movie was great and it freaking slapped, mm -hmm. but also because I had caffeine in every single pore of my body. <laughs> and I remember after that movie, I went back home and it was like 10 p.m. and I still wasn't going to bed. And my parents were like, what? this happening why is this kid not going to bed and then they eventually found out i drank coffee and you know they, they had a conversation with my grandma oh, about no. how they shouldn't give coffee to me but look what you did hey it was you a great experience her. and it was one of the best cinematic experiences of my life and the point is avatar triggered something inside of me that that it made me realize that yes i love stories and i love you know greek mythology and i love certain universes like harry potter yeah. and marvel and star wars and lord of the rings but Avatar was not part of any of those universes, and I still re very much enjoyed it. So I remember after Avatar, I was like, huh, you know, maybe I should give a try for, like, all films. Like, not just the ones from the universes I like, but all of them in general. And, you know, I'm skipping some years in the future, but the point is, you know, growing up with my family, I remember um, my family's a huge family. My grandma from my mother's side has 11 brothers and sisters. And every Christmas, we all get together in the beach in uh, a house that my family owns. And, and then we, we play volleyball. It's freaking great. And and um, and all my older cousins, because I'm one, I, I was one of the youngest ones at this time, all my older cousins would always talk about movies and they would always talk about Tarantino and Scorsese and all the things. And and I would always feel so left out. I would try to be part of the conversation, but I never understood anything they were talking about. And they would be like, hey, go go, go play in the beach. Like, you know, <laughs> you, you can't be part of this conversation. So I think at one point I just snapped and I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to watch all of these movies that all of my family members are talking about so that I can be part of the conversation. 
And I found this handy dandy list, which to this day, I still say it's the single greatest list. If if you guys need movie recommendations, hey, I, I hear that some listeners might need some movie recommendations. <laughs> if you guys need stuff to watch, there's a list called IMDb's Top 250, which, you know, IMDb is a website where people can go in and rate movies and you can give them a score from 1 to 10. Um, and IMDb's Top 250 is basically compiling all the scores that every single person that uses IMDb has given to movies. And they came up with their list of the 250 movies that have the best scores overall. And, and I found this list. And, and what, do you want, what do you want to say, Lily? You, you no, like the list? No, no. No? Go on. Okay. <laughs> the point is, I, I found the list. And I was like, great. I'll start going down the list. And the first movie, uh, the number one film in IMDb's Top 250 is... The Shawshank Redemption, which is an absolute masterpiece, one of my four favorite movies of all time. I, I adore Shawshank Redemption. And I remember thinking, like, okay, I'll go down the list. And I started with number one, Shawshank Redemption. Incredible. And, oh, I forgot to say, this, here's where we go into the next section, which is... Oh. The next section is... So, we just finished. We finished childhood, becoming a fan, and growing up, and now we're jumping into really getting into films. Um, so, yeah, the, 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 the first one is... The Shawshank Redemption, and I watched it, and I was like, this is incredible. And I kept going down the list, and I remember there was, like, a week. There was a week in my life that it just, it, it changed me from, like, a, a guy of story, a fan of, a guy of stories. It, it transformed me from a fan of stories into a fan of cinema. And I started going down the list, and there was one week where, in the same week, I watched The Shawshank Redemption, Psycho, Memento, Jaws, a Clockwork Orange, American History X, and The Matrix. And I I was just blown away. I was like, oh my god, I've been missing out on so much stuff. And I just kept going, and I kept going, and I kept watching. And, you know, especially this films, this eight, seven films that I just mentioned, really left an impact in me. Shawshank Redemption taught me how freaking great movies can be, even if they're not part of a universe like Star Wars or Marvel or stuff like that. Like, you know, that's a story about guys in a prison, and I loved it. Then Psycho, it was the first time that I watched a black and white movie and I went into it being like, ah, oh, this is going to be boring. It's a black and white film. But then I was like thrilled and enthralled and scared and terrified. And then also, spoiler alert for Psycho. Hey, if you haven't seen Psycho, that's not my fault, okay? It's a 1960s film. Have you seen Psycho, Lily? Ah, how dare you? Okay, then you're getting spoiled. <laughs> that's but okay. The point is the protagonist, of, like the film starts and you're following the, like this lady, Marion, and she like steals money and she escapes and it's like very intense and you're following her. But then halfway through the film, she dies. And you're left without a protagonist for the reminder of the film. And I remember that blew my mind. I was like, oh, my God, I I didn't know this was loud. (laughs) Like, I didn't know you could do this. And it was amazing. And I loved it. And psycho, huge impact. Then Memento. To this day, I still say my favorite filmmaker of all time has to be Christopher Nolan. Love Christopher Nolan. And, you know, you know, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, the, the Inception, Interstellar, so many incredible movies. Uh, but Memento was the one that really made me love him. Um, for those of you who don't know, Memento is a story that is told in reverse order. So the first scene that you see in the movie is the last scene, actually, if you were to put them all in chronological order. Mm-hmm. And the movie follows this guy who suffers from short-term memory loss. So, like, every five minutes, his memory gets reset. And he's trying to catch the people who killed his wife. But due to the fact that his memory resets every five minutes, he has to, like, every single piece of evidence he finds, he needs to tattoo it in his body. And then every five minutes, he needs to reset everything in order to see if he catches the person who killed his wife. And the, f- the first thing you see in the movie is him killing someone. But then that is the ending. And then the movie goes in opposite direction as you're trying to figure out, did he kill the right person? It's amazing. 
And just like Psycho blew me away because I was like, oh my god, I didn't know you were allowed to kill your protagonist halfway through. Memento just, it it pulled the rug under my feet. And it, it, it was like every single rule yeah, and convention yeah. of narrative and cinema, it just completely threw them out the, out of the trash. And I was like, I love this. I freaking love this. Have you seen any Nolan film? What's your what's your favorite Nolan film, Willie? Mm, I feel like I have. I feel like you have. I don't know what my favorite would be. This is your top one. Memento's my favorite one. Yeah, I I love love Memento. I've only seen the Prestige. Oh, love the Prestige. So freaking good. Yeah. Great pick. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, the point is Nolan. Nolan was very important for me, and still is. I to this day, I still say yes, yes. It might be basic, yes. It might be a common answer, but screw it. He is the single most influential filmmaker in my life. Him and Spielberg, I guess. I guess I, I should mention both of them. And speaking of Spielberg, the next movie that I watched in this week was Jaws. You know, Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Um, as I said, you know, I was, you know, I, I, I was a very scared child. I was terrified of the Grinch, as we've established. <laughs> So it comes to no surprise that I was completely horrified of horror movies. I wouldn't watch them. I hated them. I had a cousin who was like my same age and he was like a horror junkie and I would hate it. And he would like force me to watch little bits and pieces and then I wouldn't sleep for like months. Terrible, terrible, terrible. And then Jaws was like like the first horror movie that I really enjoyed. And I was like, there is some artistic value in here. Spielberg is doing some great, great things. And to this day, I think Jaws is one of the best movies ever made. Uh, you gotta watch it, Lily. It's freaking no, incredible. No, I'm not gonna watch that. No, hey, <laughs> Lily, Lily, we're watching Jaws, okay? We're watching Jaws. Um, and then the next movie I mentioned was A Clockwork Orange, which also had a big impact in my life. A Clockwork Orange is a movie directed by Stanley Kubrick. It is based on a very famous book, but it is also a very controversial film because the protagonist is an asshole. The protagonist is not a good guy. He does some pretty despicable films in the movie. But goddamn, uh, A Clockwork Orange is honestly one of the best movies I've ever seen. It is my personal favorite uh, uh, Kubrick film. I love Stanley Kubrick. This is my personal favorite. And this movie also shook me to the very core because it was the first movie I watched where like the protagonist was like despicable and I was still like into it and I was still like kind of rooting for him and I was like, what the hell is happening with me? And, you know, I'll, I'll come to this later on in, you know, a future section of this conversation. Uh, but, uh, but... You know, A Clockwork Orange also, you know, introduced me into kind of ideas of, like, moral ambiguity and, like, you know, some people who are not completely good but are not completely evil. And, you know, it made me kind of uncomfortable watching it because, I, you know, at this point, I was still a child. I was still very young. And, you know, I still saw the world very much as black and white. You know, there's good people. There's bad people. There's good action. There's bad action. Uh, I was too young to see the nuance, I guess. And A Clockwork Orange definitely had an impact in that. Then American History X... I love American History X. Uh, have you seen American History X? Okay. No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you, sh- you need to watch, you need to watch all of this oh, movies. Oh yeah, I'll get right on it. Uh, yeah, American History X is uh, it's it, it's my favorite Edward Norton performance uh, out of all the ones he's he's done, even more than Fight Club, I would say. Uh, but yeah, American History X is a story where Edward Norton plays a guy who used to be like uh, very much a white supremacist, like very much a neo-Nazi guy, and he's imprisoned for hate crimes. And then he has a young brother who is very much following in his footsteps and it's also going down the road of becoming a white supremacist. And the whole movie is Edward Norton comes out of prison after having changed and grown. 
And the whole movie is him trying to push his brother in the right way and trying to show him why he shouldn't follow the same path that he did. Hmm. And it the movie can be hard to watch at times. You know, of course, it gets very, very dark. But it's also a beautiful movie about why hate is baggage. And the movie ends with a beautiful, beautiful quote about where, yeah, it literally says, hate is baggage. Life's too short to be pissed off all the time. It's just not worth it. And I know this is going to sound very dumb, but watching that film at that age, I think something happened inside of me where I talked to myself and I was like, you know what? I'll try to hate as little as possible. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll try to be a happy guy as much as possible. And to this day, you know, I still try. I don't succeed all the time because, you know, we're all humans and every so often, you know, every so often we get angry, every so often we get mad. But I do still try to, you know, forget about hate and just just love. Okay? Okay. <laughs> uh, and then the next movie that I want to talk about uh, in, in this section is The Matrix, which I also saw in in this, you know, in this week where I saw all of these incredible, incredible movies. But The Matrix is also the beginning of my next section of this conversation, which is getting into philosophy. I love The Matrix. I, I generally think it's the greatest science fiction movie I've ever seen. It's one of the best movies I've ever seen. It left such an impact on me. I, 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 okay, I'll go through it. But I ended up dressing up as Neo for like Halloween when I was in 11th grade. That's how obsessed with The Matrix I was. Um, and the point is, like, The Matrix, it just completely broke me. Like, the whole idea of, like, the reality we live in might not be real. And, you know, there might be another reality. There might be something else we're not seeing. Like, it, it, all of all of those philosophical concepts of, like, w- w- metaphysics and what it means to be real and what it means for something to exist, all of that just blew my mind. And I remember I loved The Matrix so much that I started wanting to seek out these movies that had, like, like like deep like philosophical undertones like movies that the way I would call them back in the day because you know I didn't know about philosophy is I would call them movies that made me think and I would always tell people like oh there's a movie that made me think like oh I want to watch this movie I think it might make me think and I would I would love that I would love that and at that time a movie came out in theaters called Collateral Beauty um this is a movie that also a lot of people hate but it left a huge impact on me I haven't rewatched it since so maybe I'll hate it as well but it stars Will Smith, and basically, you know, Will Smith, in this film, he loses his daughter, I think. And the whole movie is he writes letter to love. He, he writes three separate letters to love, to time, and to death. Uh, basically asking them, like, why the fuck? I'm sorry, Adam. Like, why the hell did my, my daughter have to die? Mm-hmm. And I remember in theaters, I was like, oh, my. God, this is so deep, like oh my, like confronting love and confronting death and, you know, asking big questions about nature. Uh, that really moved me. And then towards that same time, we were like picking elective subjects in school. Um, and I remember I went to the philosophy presentation, but I, I wasn't keen. I was like, oh, my God, like what are, what are those philosophies? Like boring, boring granny stuff. And then I went into the presentation and I realized that philosophy was about all of these things that I really liked, you know, like really going into the human experience and into into questions about life and about what does it mean to love and what does it mean to be happy and what gives purpose to our life. And I was blown away. And I remember after the presentation, I went to the professor who his name is Rommel, one of one of the best professors I've ever had in my life. I went to him and I talked to him about this movie, Collateral Beauty, and he watched the movie and then we talked again. And then I was like, OK, I, I need to take this class. And I took philosophy, and and then in philosophy, we went back to the Matrix, and then 
by taking this philosophy class, I ended up learning that the Matrix is actually like a modern retelling of Plato's allegory of the cave, you know? The whole story about prisoners being trapped in a cave and they think that shadows are reality until suddenly one of them leaves the cave and it's like, oh my god, like, those are just shadows. This is reality and, you know, that is the Matrix. A bunch of prisoners in a cave, well, the virtual prison that is the Matrix, and they think the world they live in is real while they're actually just plugged into a machine by machines in the future. Uh, and I wrote I wrote a big essay about how the Matrix is a modern retelling of Plato's allegory of the cave. Uh, and I read the symposium and I read uh, bits and pieces of of, of the Republic and play. I I was big into Plato, freaking freaking love Plato. Plato Plato, good stuff. Yeah, I was so big into Plato that during during the pandemic, when when the pandemic started, I was like, okay, I'm never gonna have as much free time as I do now. And I read <laughs> I, I read all ten books of the Republic. Uh, what that, the heck? That was one of my pandemic goals, and I did it, and I'm very proud of it. And then I rewatched The Matrix, and I was like, oh my god, everything makes sense. Everything makes sense. I can, I can see the fabric of reality. Um, the point is, I, I jumped forward in the future, but let's, let's bring it back. So I got into The Matrix. I got into Collateral Beauty. All of those films started pointing me in the direction of philosophy. Then there was another film that really, that really did the trick, that like really got me thinking deeply into a bunch of stuff. And it is this movie that a lot of people don't like. I love. This is another movie that I, 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 I'm scared of rewatching it. I want to rewatch it passionately, but I, I've tried. I've put it on on Netflix, and I'm like this close to watching it, but then I'm like, no, what if I, what if I don't like it? What yeah. if I don't like it? Uh, and th- so the point is, I love The Matrix so much that I started looking into the body of work of the directors of The Matrix, the Wachowskis, you know, the, Wach- the Wachowski siblings, and the, the Wachowski sisters, I mean. And, um, um, and I found this movie called Cloud Atlas, and I read the synopsis, and it was like, you know, it's it's six different stories set in the same timeline, but different moments of the timeline. And the same actors act in each one of the stories, but as different characters. And it's basically this whole story about souls reincarnating and jumping from body to body from time to time. And they keep meeting and interconnecting, and everything is connecting. And something that happened in the storyline, like in the 1840s, ends up having repercussions and ripples in the story that happens like in a, in a cybernetic future. And I read that and I was like, oh my God, I need to watch this. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching this movie was genuinely one of the most profound, eye-opening experiences I've ever had. Like seeing a movie so beautifully and so poetically expressed, the connectivity of life and how we're all connected and how we're all part of one huge tapestry that is called the human experience. It just, it, it made me cry, it made me smile, it made me laugh. This movie is so big, so it, it lasts like three hours, but it's, it's so ginormous that it needed to be directed by three different people, both Wachowskis and then a third director called Tom Tyker, who also directed Run, La La Run, which I love Run, La La Run. Uh, I think he directed Ron Lola Ron. Hey, yeah. I, I might be wrong. Um, yeah. yeah. But uh, the point is, three directors, each of them tackling th- two stories. And uh, Tom Hanks acts in this. Haley, Haley, ba- Haley Berry, Haley Berry acts in this film. Uh, Viggo Mortensen, Agent Smith from The Matrix. Mr. Anderson acts in this film. <laughs> Love Cloud Atlas. And then the whole title of Cloud Atlas. Like, you know, the whole idea that, that you know, what is an atlas? You know, hey, you're a geography student, Lily. What's an atlas? <laughs> I don't have a definition for an atlas right now. Sorry. From the top of your head. 
Well, okay, don't worry. It, I, well, I, I mean, I, I don't know what an atlas is, but it's like it's like a book with maps, right? It's a book with maps. You know, you open up, you open an atlas, you see a bunch of maps from like different locations and different places, and you know the maps never change because it's 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 places and and you know well they change over time because tectonic plates and shit. But the point is like if I open an atlas right now or I open an atlas back in the 1980s, the maps would be the same. America would look the same. Colombia would look the same. You know, Europe would look the same. So then the title of this film being Cloud Atlas, like trying to map out the clouds, something that is constantly changing, something that is constantly shifting. I just, I found so much beauty in that film. And then there's a piece of music, a beautiful piece of music that comes over and over again in Cloud Atlas, which is called the Cloud Atlas Sextet. I I read some, somewhere that apparently it's not a sextet, but I don't give a fuck. It, it's an incredible piece of music. And it's like this beautiful motif that keeps coming back over and over again throughout the film in order to show how connected all of these different people are. And I, I loved it. I love Cloud Atlas. It really pushed me in the right direction. And it pushed me into thinking, into philosophy, and it pushed me into questioning my existence and my place in the world. And that brings me to my next section, which is wrestling with my own faith. But before I jump into that section, we'll go into a musical break and we will listen to the Cloud Atlas sextet. And oh, I I lost it right now. Give me one second. Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas sextet. Where is this sextet? I don't find the sextet. Um, huh. I'll find it. I'll find it. Don't worry. Lily, what do you have to say about this? I want to watch it. It looks very good. I'm looking at it right now. Oh. What? It's also... It was adapted from something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an adaptation from the book, and I haven't read the book yet, but I I, want to. I I really, really want to. Okay. Here, I found the sextet, and here it is. Huh. Ah, oh, there it is.
You're listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Hunkaminam-speaking Musqueam people. You know what I could go for right now? Authentic flour tortillas pan-fried until golden brown. Yum! Or vegan taco kits filled with traditional Mexican chilies and spices. Yeah, that sounds good. Or how about vegan potato and chorizo taquitos? How can I get these foods immediately? Buy Lita's Mexican Foods. Sounds delicious. Tell me more. Lita's Mexican Foods is a female-managed, plant-based Mexican food innovator in BC. Their products come pre-packaged and frozen at tons of local grocery stores around Metro Vancouver. Not to mention they can be cooked in under 10 minutes! Wow, that sounds perfect for me. I've been so busy lately and dinner takes so long to make. Where can I get my hands on some Lita's Mexican Foods? Lots of places! Whole Foods, Choices, Stongs, Vegan Supply, Donald's, and even UBC Bookstore. Hey, where are you going? To buy some Lita's Mexican foods. See you later. See ya. February 24th marks one year since Russian full-scale war against Ukraine and nine years of Ukrainian resistance against Russian invasion and imperialism. One year full of unimaginable horror and extreme resiliency. We at the Ukrainian Student Union at the University of British Columbia would like you to remind that the war is not over. Ukrainians are still suffering. Please consider donating to the government organization United24, launched by the President of Ukraine, as the main venue for collecting donations to cover the most pressing needs. Visit u24.gov.ua for more details. Glory to Ukraine! Do you want to change the state of the world? But instead you keep buying material goods to satisfy whatever desire you have in that very moment? Me too. But now you can do both! Rock Shop and Community Thrift is a local vintage shop that fulfills your 1970s all-chic fantasy while also supporting at-risk people through their compassionate and supportive work training program. All of their profits go to the PHS Community Services Society to support ongoing health care, harm reduction, and health promotion projects in Vancouver and Victoria. So stop by their two locations, Community Unisex on West Hastings or Community Frock Shop on Corral Street. And if you know any other local businesses that deserve recognition for their generous business practices or their contributions to the community, please DM us on Instagram at CITR and Discorder because we would love to spotlight them. Because hey, if you can't stop buying, you might as well start supporting. Looking to get a reliable and affordable used bike? Need a repair or service to your current ride? Come to the Bike Kitchen, UBC's full-service community bike shop, located in room 36 of the UBC Life Building. Our hours are Monday to Friday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. If you buy a bike from us, 
bring it back when you're done using it and we'll give you half of your money back as long as you took care of it. If it needs repairs, we'll split the cost with you. Yep, you heard us right. We'll give you crisp dollar bills for half the original price of any used bike that you buy from us. Minus the cost of repairs. For more information about our buyback policy and to stay up to date on any COVID-19 inspired changes, find us online at thebikekitchen.com. Welcome back to the real world. This is your host, Tom Pablo Sá, talking to you from CITR 101.9 FM Vancouver. I hope you'll enjoy that musical break of the beautiful Cloud Atlas sextet. Um, of course, for those of you who are just tuning in, I am here with the incredible Lily Grove. Say hello, Lily. Hello. Hell yeah. Uh, and yeah, for those of you who are just tuning in, we are doing a whole episode about the movies that shaped me, or, you know, I guess it would be more aptly called... A story of my life told yeah. through film yeah. <laughs> because we are going through my life, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> both the ups and downs, the highs and lows, the embarrassing and the cool. It's been a roller coaster. It's, it's been a roller coaster. Uh, so yeah, for those of you who don't know, uh, I've already covered uh, a chapter that I would like to call my childhood, then another one called becoming a fan, then another one called growing up, <laughs> which was very interesting. Um, then there was another one called really getting into films, and then the chapter that we just finished before the ad break was called getting into philosophy. Now, the following chapter is called Wrestling With My Faith. So, you know, as I established, uh, films were very much an entryway into me getting into philosophy and, you know, developing a very curious mind, I guess I would say at least. Uh, you know, and something that comes with a curious mind and something that comes with getting into philosophy is, you know, starting to question things that, you know, usually you wouldn't have. Uh, And, you know, all of these films that I started watching that, you know, really pushed me into into thinking about my existence, about life, about my role, my purpose, about what makes me happy. Films like The Matrix, films like Collateral Beauty, films like films like Cloud Atlas, all of those films eventually pushed me into, yeah, questioning my existence, questioning things that I hadn't until then, and eventually to questioning my own faith. Um, and, okay, I guess I'll say, I'll start by saying that I grew up in a Catholic family. I grew up, yeah, very Catholic family. Uh, my parents, not so much. Like, okay, my parents are Catholic and they go to mass, but they're not, like, super fanatics. Um, my grandma and my grandma's mother, my great-grandma, who, you know, was alive when I was growing up and she was a huge influence in my life. She was very, very Catholic and she's also one of the kindest, one of one of the kindest people I ever met. She's not with us anymore at this moment, but, you know, that's the circle of life, I guess. Um... But yeah, the point is I grew up very much in a Catholic family with Catholic values, reading the Bible, you know, assuming that everything that's in the Bible is just verbatim, is just literal things that actually happened. You know, growing, I grew up assuming that, yep, a guy did build a boat and filled it with animals and then the world was flooded for 40 days and then, you know, it came out. Um, and I never questioned that until, once again, until I started getting in the spirit of my life where I started thinking deeper into the world that surrounded me and into myself. Um, and I guess... The first film that I need to bring up uh, when I mention this episode of me wrestling with my, with my, you know, with my faith. First of all, I will say that this chapter is not a chapter that is just contained to this two years. And this were the two years where I was wrestling with my faith. And then after it, I never wrestled with my faith ever. No, 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 no. To this day, I'm still wrestling with my faith. And I'm still in the process of figuring out what I want or what I believe or what I think I, I, I should live by. I don't, I don't know. I, yeah. You know. We're all a work in progress, Lily. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, this is a, pro a process that still hasn't ended. This is a chapter that still hasn't closed. But, you know, for cohesion's sake, I am introducing it right now. Um, and the first film that I need to bring up is Disney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. 
this was the first film that ever, as a child, even before I started in this whole period, this was the first film where I was like, huh, wait a minute. I didn't think much about it because I was a child, but okay, the point is the villain in The Hunchback of Notre Dame is uh, Count Frollo, right? Judge Frollo or something like that. In the film The Hunchback of Notre Dame, he's basically this powerful individual who's part of the French government and he abuses his power to just kill gypsies and, and burn houses and forcing people to do whatever they want. And he's a horrible, horrible human being who lusts for this gypsy woman. Uh, but because the gypsy woman doesn't want to be with him, he just goes out of his way to burn her and condemn her and then, you know, send her back to hell, as he says. And he's a horrible, horrible person. Um, but he's also very religious. He was also he was also very religious. And he's th- his villain song in The Hunchback of Notre Dame is Hellfire. Or have you, You've seen Hunchback of Notre Dame. You haven't seen Hunchback of Notre Dame, Lily? No. Oh, my God. Well... He has, in my opinion, one of the two greatest villain songs ever in any Disney movies. You know, it's Frollo's Hellfire and Scar's Be Prepared from the Lion King. And in his song, Hellfire, it literally starts as a conversation between him and Ave Maria and the saints asking them to to help him and to help his pious soul. And as a child watching that, I was always like, if this guy is so faithful and is so into religion and believes in all of these great things that I also believe in, then... Why is he such an asshole? Mm. But I never thought about it much because, you know, I was like, okay, maybe he's misguided. Maybe he's not getting the right, you know, information. You know, he's 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 just wrong, I guess. He's not reading into the right sort of stuff. But then I remember very young, um, I was talking to the Hunchback of Notre Dame to like an uncle. And I remember they mentioned that, hey, you know, in the Disney movie, uh, Frollo, the villain, he's just, he's just like a judge. He's just like a government official. But in the original book by Victor Hugo, he's actually a member of the church. He's actually an archdeacon of Joseph's. And as a child, that shocked me. That really, really shocked me because I was like, you know, religion is good. God is good. The church is good. Why the hell would a member of the church do all of the horrible things that Frollo does in The Hunchback of Notre Dame? I think that was the first time ever in my life that I started questioning the idea of like, you know, maybe God and the church are not the same thing. You know, human beings are fallible. Therefore, things that are made by humans and didn't just fall from the sky are also going to be fallible. Um, I think that was the first time where that came into my, my mind. But, I, you know, I never really thought about it. I was like, oh, that's that's odd. You know, that's odd. But I never really, you know, let that thought simmer in my mm-hmm. head. Um, until in 10th grade in high school, I had to do my confirmation. You know, as Catholics, when you when you get to tenth grade, you have to confirm your faith in 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 you know in, in Catholicism and Jesus and God, uh, and you know you you do this whole process where you take like classes and you learn certain oh, prayers right, right. and you know professors uh, you know people tell you and they talk to you about faith and about Jesus and about God and about the Bible, mm-hmm. and you go on, on a retreat for like a weekend and well at least that's what they did in Colombia. I don't I don't know if this is a universal thing, but that's what they did for me, and that process of that part of my life was extremely unstable in a faith perspective because at the same time that I was preparing to do this very important step of getting confirmed and you know confirming my faith in in God at the same time I was also getting really into Dan Brown books Uh, for those of you who don't know Dan Brown is the guy who wrote uh, you know the Da Vinci Code Angels and Demons Inferno all of those books which you know uh, to to say it briefly, they are very much about, you know, pointing out corruption inside the church and, you know, incredibly messed up things that happened in the past. 
uh, about how maybe there m- might have been some misinterpretation in the Bible, how maybe some things might have been a different way. We just don't know. He re- All of his books really point out the fact that, hey, you know, the Bible was written by humans and humans are fallible and humans have their own personal motivation. So, you know, maybe they wrote some things in the Bible that actually didn't happen, but only for it to benefit them. And I remember I read uh, The Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons and all these books and I was like, oh my God. And, you know, in The Da Vinci Code, they even go as far as to say like, yeah, Jesus had a child with Mary Magdalene. And it, I, in my mind, I was like, whoa, I was like blown away and... I was very confused. I yeah. was so, so, so very confused. So yeah, I guess the next movie I will bring up is The Da Vinci Code, the movie of The Da Vinci Code. Even though all of this confusion in my life came mostly from reading those books, I also watched the movie adaptations and those also, you know, they were cool. They starred my favorite actor at that time, Tom Hanks. Um, and they were movies that really made me be like, huh, what is happening here? What do I even believe in? And it was a weird time period because at the same time that I was, you know, questioning all of these things, at the same time, I was also getting ready to confirm my faith. And as part of my confirmation process, I remember they made us watch uh, religious movies, you know, and one of the movies they made us watch was The Passion of the Christ. And that is the next movie that I want to bring up because that movie really left an impact in me. I I I think it's beautiful. It's it's beautiful and it's hard to watch and it's heart wrenching. And, you know, it just like the Da Vinci Code and all of these other stories made me question all of these things. The Passion of the Christ was a movie that really made me be like, oh my God, like this, you know, this is profound. Like there's there's some meaningful stuff here. Um, but yeah, I was very confused. And then also through around that time, I also watched another movie that was very important for my chapter of wrestling with my own faith, which was I watched Martin Scorsese's Silence. Have you watched Silence, Lily, by any chance or... Should I stop asking you if you watch movies? I haven't seen that one. <laughs> no worries. Um, Silence is one of my favorite Martin Scorsese films. But it is basically, I think it's based on a true story about priests, uh, Catholic or Christian priests, I don't remember what they're from, that traveled to Japan to spread Catholicism in Japan, in, in you know, in feudal Japan, in a time where, like, like the, that belief system was, like, prohibited and people were, like, killed for believing in that. And... It's a story about two priests that go to Japan with faith and very strong. And, and you know, they're like, yes, we're going to do this and we're going to spread the word of God. But then throughout their time in Japan, they, they you know, they slowly get shaken up. They start to question their own beliefs. And, you know, the movie is called Silence because the whole movie is about these guys dealing with how do we believe and how do we stay strong considering the fact that all we hear from God is silence, you know, like... You know, God never talks to to them and is like, hey, you're doing a great job. Keep going. Or, hey, don't do that. But it's it's how to find meaning and how to find God amidst the silence. That is why the film is called Silence. And that film was really important for me because even though it questioned all of this and it brought into question all of this and it questioned the silence of God and the silence of our creator, it also highlighted the importance of believing regardless of it if it is real and regardless of it if it is fake. It, it really highlighted, you know, some of the benefits and some of the good aspects of, of believing and being part of a faith, uh, how it can help you in your life as a guiding philosophy to guide your action with, uh, and how also it instills sense of community and, you know, a sense of, a sense and all of the good things that come from believing in these things. Yeah. And I think that was very beautiful. And that, that really pushed me into like, okay, I might have doubts about what I believe in, but I am willing to confirm my faith. Because even though I'm not like 100% certain, like, yes, this is 100% real, 
I like what believing in this brings me. I like, you know, how it makes me a member of my family, I guess. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I I like some of the values that, you know, are, are practiced by, by this religion. So, I yeah, I did my confirmation. I got confirmed. Mm-hmm. But once again, that's not the end of my journey of wrestling with my own faith. Then I think something that really helped was Monty Python. Monty Python, for those of you who don't know, they're a British comedy trope. And they make, like, incredible movies. I love them. I, I think they're, like, some of my favorite comedy movies of all time. Their three most famous films are, you know, Monty Python, The Holy Br- Grail, The Life of Brian, and uh, the, uh, the Meaning of Life. Uh, and they're all super funny. So, so funny. But they're also so very deep. And... I think the life of Brian is basically a spoof on the story of Christ, kind of. <laughs> the movie begins with like the three wise men going to the wrong stable where the wrong child is being born called Brian. Uh, and then you follow Brian as everyone believes he's a messiah. And well, he, he actually isn't. And it, it it's so funny. I love, love the life of Brian. And, you know, the life of Brian is a movie that that made me kind of equipped me to deal with the nihilism of life, you know? In life, sometimes it can get very overwhelming, the fact that, you know, maybe this is all meaningless. Maybe there's nothing after life. Maybe nothing matters. Maybe we're going to die and it's just going to be black emptiness. Uh, You know, maybe all of this means nothing. We're insignificant when compared to the scale of the universe. And, you know, thinking about things like that, can be quite overwhelming, especially for, you know, someone in 10th grade who's just, like, figuring out who the hell I want to be in my life. Um, and, you know, it, it's easy to see that nihilism, you know, to see that that sense of, like, oh, everything's meaningless, nothing matters, my life doesn't matter, I'm going to die and I'm going to become nothing. And it's very easy to become very depressed and to become very nihilistic and to just give up on everything because nothing matters. But then Monty Python, through their comedy, what they're essentially teaching in all their films is, yes, sure, Maybe things don't matter. Maybe existence doesn't matter. Maybe there's nothing after the end of the world. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't just create our own meanings. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't just find meanings ourselves and, you know, find things that matter to us, Mm -hmm. even if they don't matter in the big cosmic scale. And in uh, Monty Python and the Life of Brian, the spoof of the story of Jesus, the movie literally ends with a group of people getting crucified as they sing an incredible song called Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. And it's, you know, that attitude of, you know, smiling at the face of adversity and that whole attitude of, yes, you know, life can be confusing. Life can be scary. Existence can be scary. Maybe we don't matter. And, you know, life can be a shit show every once in a while. But, you know, it's all about trying to smile more than we cry, I guess. That's that's what life is all about. You know, trying to be happy and and trying to smile more than we cry. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Monty Python really taught me. And to this day, I take it with me. And then, you know, same applies for The Meaning of Life. That's another incredible movie from them, which, as the title implies, the whole it's an anthology film. So it's like different little sketches. And the whole all the sketches are about trying to answer the question, what is the meaning of life? But it's very meta and it's very funny because all the sketches... Yeah, they might answer some things, but then they, they also open up like a bajillion other questions. And yeah. at the end of the day, the point of the movie is like, it doesn't matter what the meaning of like you create your meaning for life. Like you you do you like don't there's not one universal meaning like this. No, like you do what makes you happy, man. And I I like that philosophy. I, I love like Monty Python. Hell yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it resembles the philosophy of another movie that we very much love. Everything everywhere all at once, you know. 
that is a whole movie about like yeah everything's meaningless and the world is absurd and nothing matters but you know let's just let's just be kind to each other you know maybe doing taxes with you for a whole life would be enough mm-hmm. um so i i can see why hey you should definitely check out monty python and lily um but yeah and then the last film i guess you know of course there are other films that have collaborated in my wrestling with my own ex- with my own faith uh the last temptation of christ another movie by martin scorsese a film where very boldly he depicts jesus christ willem dafoe plays jesus christ incredible incredible performance but jesus christ is portrayed in this film not as a perfect uh, sublime individual but as a human being and yeah very bold very controversial many people had problems with this film when it came out but yeah he depicted jesus as a flawed human and mm-hmm. that was fascinating that was fa- seeing that it was like whoa i've whoa i've never seen this i've i've, I've never even considered this and it, it you know it really brought some thoughts into me and then i i think the last film i um, the exorcist of course also you know the exorcist literally features a priest that is wrestling with his own faith so that was also something that i was like huh the ingmar bergman movies to some extent um but then the last film that i would mention in this section of wrestling with my own faith would be uh life of pi uh so when i was in first year of uni where you are right now lily mm. in the shoes you're standing in right now Uh I took an English class called Shipwrecks and Difficult Questions that it was all about us reading books where shipwrecks happen, you know, where shipwrecks are featured and we would just talk about difficult questions such as does God exist? What is the meaning of life? What makes us happy? Through those books with shipwrecks, you know, we read William Shakespeare's The Tempest, The Tempest. We read The Island of Dr. Moreau and then the last book we read was The Life of Pi. And I had never gotten like I remember when the Life of Pi came out when the movie came out. I remember my aunt would be like, "Yeah, it's all about God," and I would be like, "How? What? How? Well, how the hell is this about God?" But then in this class, it everything clicked, and I was like, "Huh, this is a book about faith." You know, at the end of the day, it's about a, ch- a kid, you know, a child who survives this event. No one knows the experience he went through, and he tells two versions of the same story. Have you seen Life of Pi? No. Okay, I'm, I apologize. I'm going to spoil life of fire a bit. But so he tells this fantastical story where he survived on a raft with a tiger and he found this floating island, a carnivorous island with meerkats and there were like teeth growing from like trees and it was like an insane insane story. And then but then and so he that's that's the first story he tells of what happened to him and how he survived. But then at the end he also tells a different version of the story where instead of him surviving with a bunch of animals he actually was in a raft with a bunch of people who survived the 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 shipwreck and the people started killing each other and you know and at the end of at the end of the film he never tells you which one happened he leaves it up to your own interpretation mm-hmm. you know you can believe whatever you want to believe and people in the film and in the book people question question him and tell him like oh, pff, your story is fake like there's no like there's no floating island with like magical teeth growing from the trees and stuff like that and i'm paraphrasing of course but he says something like yeah you know if you live your life you know with the idea that oh that's impossible that's physically impossible that's biologically impossible then you're you'll never going to see it but if you live your life open to all possibility and open to seeing the beauty even in things that might not be real then you know you might end up seeing some pretty incredible things and i think that that's where i'm at right now <laughs> in terms of my faith okay. that's that's where i'm at right now i believe in something i love the sense of community that comes with believing and i i, I love how close it brings me to my family i am also in a place where like even if it's not real 
I don't care because I'll find meaning in my own life. And I'm also in a stage where I'm like, but still, I'll live my life open to anything and open to seeing the beauty in the mundane, I guess. Okay. <laughs> wow. Um, well, hey, I can't wait to, to hear about your religious experiences next week. No, I'm kidding. I'm, yes. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding, Lily. You don't have to. Uh, but yeah, that's so. So that's it. That's it. I'm, I'm sorry if I lost some listeners. I've, no. I hope no one was offended by you know things I said. You know, of course, I'm uh, the, the most important thing about talking about faith and religion is being respectful. You know, and we're all in this world together. We're all in the same boat. We're all trying to figure out what the hell we're living in and what the hell this life is. And you know, people people can have different definitions, and people can come up with different conclusions of what they think is important and what they should believe in. And you know. That doesn't make one better than the other or vice versa. We're all in this together. We're all struggling. We're all confused. And hopefully we'll we'll find our way and we'll find a way to be happy. There you go. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> um, now, uh, in this time of my life, I didn't only wrestle with my faith, but I also wrestled with, you know, my inner thoughts and my inner philosophy and the way I viewed the world. Something I mentioned before is as a child, you know, I was very naive. I was very innocent. I saw the world in black and white. You know, I saw the world as like, yes, the world is full of good people and bad people. Mm-hmm. Bad people do bad things. Good people do good things. I never even questioned the idea that, hey, you know, maybe some actions that could appear to be bad could end up leaving, leading to a greater good. Or maybe some people do some bad actions because they're forced to and because they need to do those bad actions in order to get something they desperately need in order to do something that is going to end up being good. I never questioned that, you know, I, 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 yeah, I was very innocent, I was very naive, good people, bad people, you steal, you're a bad person, you go to jail, you, you don't, you're a good person, that's it. Yeah. And at this moment of my life, I, you know, started realizing that maybe that was not the case. Um, as I said, I was very much into superhero movies, and I was very much into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and the first phase of the MCU, it's very many, many can, many, 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 many can. Okay. I don't know how to say that in English. Manichaeismo. Okay. Manichaeismo. It's a branch of philosophy that basically states the people, you know, it's a branch of philosophy that states that, yeah, in the world, there are two substances, good and evil, and there's only good and evil. And when you act evil is because you're possessed by the evil essence. So, you know, I don't believe in Manichaeism, but, but that branch of belief is very popular in films. Harry Potter, 100% 100% many can. You have evil people, you have good people. That's it. Zero nuance. Like, the most nuance is, like, what, Draco Mar- Malfoy, who, like, flip-flops halfway through, but yeah. that's it. Lord of the Rings, extremely many can. Evil, dark Lord Sauron, who's just evil for the sake of being evil, and he's creating evil orcs, and everyone else is good. Star Wars, extremely many can. You have the good rebels, you have the bad empire. Um... And even the MCU, Marvel, you have good heroes, righteous heroes, fighting evil, fighting aliens, fighting bad people. Um, but then something happened in the second phase of the MCU where I, 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 I saw that Marvel films were starting to get a bit more complex. You know, in Captain America and the Winter Soldier, which is the next film that I'll bring up. In Captain America, the Winter Soldier, you realize that this organization called S.H.I.E.L.D., which is basically like, you know, yeah, S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh, it's like the group that like handles the Avengers and like Nick Fury is part of S.H.I.E.L.D., and S.H.I.E.L.D. has always been like the good guys, you know, they're the good guys fighting for good. But then in Captain America, the Winter Soldier, they reveal that, no, 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 S.H.I.E.L.D. has been infiltrated by Hydra, who is like a branch of Nazis. Uh, so there's actually evil people as part of Hydra. And in that film, Captain America's like outlawed and the government is looking for him. And it, it gets very morally confusing and very morally ambiguous. And as a child, I was like, 
wait a minute. I thought this were the good guys, but yeah. they're doing bad things. And mm-hmm. this guy is uh, maybe maybe there's something more to it. And then the the movie that like boom like like really cemented that in me was Captain America: Civil War. Captain America: Civil, you know, Captain America: Winter Soldier introduced the idea of moral ambiguity. Captain America: Civil War, there is no villain. Oh, well, yeah, there is a villain called Zemo, Baron Zemo. But the main clash, like the main fight in Captain America: Civil War, it's in between the Avengers themselves. You have Iron Man on one side, Captain America on another side, and, and all the Avengers split up and they fight against each other. And how could that be? You know, they're all good guys. Why the hell are these good guys fighting? And you know, th- that's really when I started realizing, like, hey, you know, there's some nuances of opinion. You know, there are people with different opinions, and it is, you know, some opinion. Some sides have pros and cons. Some others have pros and cons, and it is, it is. The world is not as simple as good and evil. Um, so yeah, and then the next movie that I will bring up in this chapter of of you know wrestling with the fact that the world is not just black and white. Is a movie that really disturbed me the first time I saw it. And that is a film that I've brought up in previous episodes of The Real World. And that is Zack Snyder's Watchmen, which is one of my favorite superhero movies ever made. It is based on an incredible comic book from Alan Moore, which to this day, I think it's one of the best, not just comic books, but one of the best books I've ever written. I've ever read. I've ever, I, didn't, I didn't write Watchmen. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, the point is, um, you know, Watchmen is all about deconstructing the superhero mythos. You have superheroes doing horrible, horrible things. You have superheroes fighting in Vietnam doing disturbing things. Dr. Manhattan destroying entire civilizations. The comedian is, you know, taking advantage of Vietnamese women. And it's, 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 it's disturbing. And as a child who grew up with Marvel, where, like, heroes are good, villains are bad, simple, to suddenly see these films where like heroes who I'm kind of rooting for are also doing disturbing and horrible things and they're all flawed. And they... It disturbed me so much to the point that the first time I watched it, a friend, a friend called me and he was like, hey, Juan, I've got a film for you. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. And I was like, okay, let's watch this film. And he played Watchmen. And halfway through, I just, I, I remember I made something up. I was like, oh, I have a meeting. And I, I left. I just, le- I was, I was shocked. I was like, that's, like, yeah, something really profound, profoundly disturbed me. Like, why the hell are superheroes doing horrible, horrible things? And yeah, that, that shocked me. Um, of course, down the line, I eventually went back to Watchmen, and now I love it. Now, now I think Watchmen is one of the greatest superhero movies ever made. But back then, it, oof, it, it, it really wrecked me. And another film in the same vein is Pan's Labyrinth, which was my introduction to Guillermo del Toro, who is now one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. You know, Pan's Labyrinth. It's a fairy tale. It's a twisted fairy tale told in an age in Civil War Spain. So, you know, Civil War Spain is a time where morals are very ambiguous. You know, usually when you grow up, you are told, hey, you have to obey. You have to follow orders. You know, you have to do what your parents say. But what if your father is a fascist? But what if you're living in fascist Spain where following orders would mean becoming a fascist and doing some horrible, horrible things? And that movie, you know, I, I was a Disney kid. I grew up watching Disney movies, as you guys probably already know by hearing this episode. And Disney movies were very simple. You know, you follow order. You do what your parents say and you're good. You're Gucci. You know, you've got a great life. But then seeing Guillermo del Toro making this also twisted fairy tale where suddenly following orders is not always good. And, you know, people can die and actions have repercussions. That really shocked me. That really woke me up. And that film impacted me so much to the point that in 12th grade, in my final year of the IB, 
I ended up writing my extended essay, which is the final piece of writing that you have to do to graduate the IB. I wrote it on Pan's Labyrinth. I wrote it on how Guillermo del Toro challenges traditional conventions associated to the fairy tale genre in both Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water. Love Guillermo del Toro. Love Pan's Labyrinth. Um, and then, you know, in in this in this point of my life, um, in in this in this part of my life, I was. Once again, this happened almost simultaneously to what I was saying in the in the part about my faith, where I was kind of becoming kind of nihilist, and I was like, "Oh, nothing matters. Everything sucks. Life sucks. Oh, nothing matters. Like I'm depressed. What the hell's happening?" And yeah, I I remember thinking to myself like, "Oh, goddamn! Like, is is this what growing up is? Like, you just become sad and sour and mm-hmm. depressed, and everything's dark and everything's meaningless. Like, I I hate that. I freaking hate that." And I I was sad by my the transformation that I was seeing inside of me and by the person that I was becoming, but then I watched this one movie, which remember that little Mary Poppins setup that I did at oh, the very yeah. beginning. Oh yeah. Then I watched this movie called Saving Mr. Banks, also starring starring my favorite actor at the time, Tom Hanks. Um, and this is the movie about the making of Mary Poppins. And this movie it. it I don't think I've ever cried so much watching a movie than I did watching Saving Mr. Banks because it really resonated with what I was going through at the time. This is basically a movie where, okay, P.L. Travels, the officially writer, the, the original writer of Mary Poppins, and Walt Disney, the guy who ended up adapting Mary Poppins and turning it into a, mo- into a movie, this whole movie is about both of them clashing because they're both they both have different ideas for what they want Mary Poppins to be. Um, and they, they they are both very strong-minded individuals, and they they you know it's very difficult to make their their hands flex. I guess mm-hmm. P.L. Travels, uh, the original writer of Mary Poppins, had a very dark childhood, and the whole point why she wrote Mary Poppins is because she was like, yeah, the original Mary Poppins book needs to be dark because children need to be aware of how fucked up. Sorry, Adam, of how fucked up the real world is. On the other hand, Walt Disney was a guy that was all about no. Children should be protected. Innocence should be protected. Childhood should be protected. So while P.L. Travel saw Mary Poppins as a character that should bring children into how hard the world is, Walt Disney saw Mary Poppins as an escape, something for children to escape and forget about how hard the world is. So yeah, extremely different ideologies and extremely different philosophies. And of course, they clashed. And this movie, I freaking love this movie. And they go through that entire process. And the movie ends with a beautiful shot of... P.L. Travels and Walt Disney watching the movie at the Chinese theater in Los Angeles and crying. And the main takeaway from this movie is, yes, you know, you can grow up. And yes, you will become aware of how dark and dour and difficult the world is. But you shouldn't let that kill the inner child you have on your inside. And I took that to heart. And to this day, I try. You know, sometimes I don't succeed. But I do try to keep that little child still alive inside of me i think you do succeed from what i've seen thank you lily <laughs> you're welcome this is becoming into therapy <laughs> this is generally becoming therapy um yeah th- these are things i've never said out loud but um here i am saying it to millions and millions of <laughs> listeners around the globe <laughs> listeners, yeah. uh, but um but yeah and then you know i guess to close off this part of of wrestling with the fact that the world is not just black and white This part started with superheroes, with Captain America, Civil War, and Watchmen. And I think it's fitting that I close this chapter by talking about another superhero movie that represents my growth, I guess. Okay. And that was Deadpool. 
Deadpool is another superhero movie that, hey, Wade, Wade the main character of Deadpool, not a good guy, <laughs> does some very shitty, fucked up stuff. Sorry, Adam, I don't know why I'm cursing so much towards <laughs> the end. But uh, yeah, he does some pretty bad stuff. And while the Juan from the beginning of this chapter would have been appalled and completely repelled and disgusted by the actions of Deadpool... By the time when this film came out, which, by the way, this is another film that I had to sneak into, just like Homefront. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, the International Women's Day scene, that that also left an impact. But <laughs> have you seen Deadpool? I saw it, but I don't really remember uh, We'll, we'll it talk well. about it after the episode, but <laughs> after we wrap up. But the point is, you know, I went back to Deadpool, and that was another superhero movies where bad things happen, where the character is morally ambiguous. And I was able to watch this film from with a new perspective with a new set of eyes with the idea that yes the world is tough the world is can get dark but i shouldn't let the little child inside of me die and i was able to find enjoyment in this film that would have completely disgusted me if i would have seen it before Hmm. and i love deadpool i think it's one of the best superhero movies ever made and it's incredibly meta um but yeah okay i think that is gonna be it for this first chapter, the first episode of the movies that made me, you know, I know that previously I, I said that I was going to talk about all the movies that shaped me in just one episode, but you know, it just wouldn't do one justice. <laughs> the, so thank you, Lily. We're, we're going to go for round two. <laughs> we are going to go for round two. So, you know, if, if you guys want to know how my life progresses and changes and what other embarrassing stories I have that are somehow tied to film... Uh, make sure to tune in next Monday, also from 4 to 5 p.m. Well, 4 to 6 p.m., I guess, <laughs> where I'm going to be wrapping up the story of my life told through films. And, you know, for all of Lily's family who are probably listening to this right now, I apologize that Lily wasn't able to speak as much <laughs> this episode. <laughs> I am very sorry. Uh, that said, you know, not next week, but the week after that, it is going to be Lily's turn. You know, Lily's going to have the in- an entire episode or two if, you know, if she finds it if she needs more time but Lily's gonna have an entire episode to talk about the movies that shaped her so yeah next monday april 3rd it's gonna be the movies that shaped me part two and then april 10th is gonna be the movies that shaped lily Aww. oh my god so yeah thank you all so much for tuning in lily do you have any final words any, any comments about anything I can't wait to hear the rest of the story. I feel like we're like it's pausing in a book. <laughs> like I'm I'm waiting to learn more of the the journey, but Aww. I guess we'll get it next week. Thank you. Yeah, I hope you'll enjoy this little therapy session. <laughs> you see, you see I don't I don't go to the therapy. I I, I talk on the radio. <laughs> we just go to the real world. <laughs> uh yeah. I hope you'll enjoyed it. Uh now before I leave you all off, we are going to listen to another song. And this time we're going to listen to the song from Monty Python's Life of Brian, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. And here... Oh, but yeah. And after the song, this is over. So I guess we can say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you for listening. Bye. And here's the song. Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, that grumble, give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best. Always look on the bright side of life. 
Always look on the light side of life If life seems jolly rotten There's something you've forgotten And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing When you're feeling in the dumps Don't be silly chumps Just purse your lips and whistle That's the thing Always look on the bright side of life Come on Always look on the bright side of life For life is quite absurd And death's the final word You must always face the curtain with a bow Forget about your scene Give the audience a grin Enjoy it, it's your last chance anyhow. So always look on the bright side of death. Just before you draw your terminal breath. Life's a piece of shit when you look at it. Life's a laugh and death's a joke, it's true. You'll see it's all a show, keep them laughing as you go. Just remember that the last laugh is on you. And always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the right side of life. I said they'll never make that money back. Oh.